Americans. This is the Urbane Cowboys podcast with Josiah Neely of R Street Institute and Doug McCullough of Lone Star Policy Institute. Good day. Howdy, y'all. I'm Doug McCullough of the Lone Star Policy Institute. Today, I'll be flying solo as Josiah Neely isn't able to make it. But I am joined today by Allison Schrager of Manhattan Institute, a senior fellow there, as well as a, a writer at Bloomberg. Allison, thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. The, the conversation I initially wanted to have is really about where we are in the economic recovery and what the headwinds are, because it seems like there's a lot of issues that we're going to be dealing with as we try to get through the uh, recovery. And I asked a good friend of mine, friend of the show, Michael Hendricks, for a, a suggestion who might be really good on the topic. And he, he recommended you. And as I'm getting familiar with your work, I see that there's probably a ton of different things that we could possibly cover because you've, uh, you've done some really interesting writing. But let's, let's start with, uh, I guess, just sort of a, an overview of where do you think we are in the recovery? And then we can kind of drill down a little bit. What, you know, what, where do you think we are? Are we making progress towards, uh, towards an economic recovery? I mean, absolutely. Um, I mean, I think for many of us, we've never really experienced the sort of recession we did last year, which was largely supply in nature rather than demand, and that, you know, we shut down an economy. I mean, that's actually something we've never really done ever, even for pandemics in the past. So it makes sense. And then not only we shut down the economy, we sent people a ton of money. So it makes sense that we're just going to have a very vigorous recovery this year and reopening the economy and people get, having all this pent up demand for things they haven't been doing and with a lot of money in their pockets. I mean, we're it's very unusual about the sort of recession we had last year is we're coming out of it with household balance sheets being in great shape, which normally isn't the case. So we're probably, as I said, going to see more growth than any of us have ever remembered for the rest of this year. Yeah, I, I I tend to agree with you, and I tend to be very optimistic normally. Um, but it seems like that we have uh, a whole host of existing issues that we're going to have to contend with, as well as sort of some potential issues, uh, primarily on the policy front. So let's talk a little bit about some of the some of the headwinds that we're dealing with. Uh, one of the things I know that um, is getting a lot of press coverage is uh, supply chain. Uh, disruptions. And that, that's everything from uh, semiconductor chips to lumber to chicken. What's driving that? Uh, you know, what is it a policy failure? Is it just the way the economy is sort of re- uh, responding to uh, a year of sort of disorder? What's what's behind all of that? Well, I mean, we've become a very globally integrated economy. Like every little piece of equipment we have has been made a million different places. And normally that works really well. But then you sort of shut down the whole economy and or the global economy and sort of and like revert from all these trading relationships we have. And it's hard to get things going again. And as I said, we we have all these, you know, sort of trade relationships that need to be revived and every country has been shut down in their own way and reopening at their own pace. So it's not surprising things aren't going smoothly. We also are seeing as well the sort of the cyber risk, which is also, you know, not become the big factor, but we're also I think that's also going to be a bigger risk. We're seeing that right now with beef production. So I think we're gonna said see some hiccups. You don't just turn a switch and get back online, especially when you have such a globally integrated economy. All right. And I think sort of the elephant in the room is inflation. Uh, what What is your sense of it? Because I know you've written about it uh, recently in terms of retirement savings and what inflation may mean uh, if you're planning on retirement. But what do you think the risk is of, of inflation? Do you think it's inevitable? Do you think we're headed there? Uh, and what, what can we do to uh, protect ourselves on, on the inflation front? Well, I think, I mean, 
I say inflation is inevitable. I think we're going to have higher inflation than we're used to. Does that mean we're going back to the 70s? Probably not, or at least not in the same way. But I think we are going to maybe see higher inflation than we're used to, 3 4% after being used to sort of 1%, 2%. But even that is meaningful, right? I mean, that's a non-trivial change in your purchasing power. And also, I think we're going to have more uncertainty around inflation. I think we're going to see inflation more for some goods other than others. And so uh, people might feel like they're getting less of inflation, but they're going to feel like policymakers aren't being responsive to it. So as I said, we're going to have more inflation for sure, but I don't think it's going to be this clean 1970s, oh my God, we've got like this like astronomical inflation and we see it everywhere. It's going to be a little bit more subtle, but certainly I think cause some damage and definitely contribute to uncertainty. Like I think a lot of people minimize. I'm a My background is a financial economist, so it's not always the level. It's also the uncertainty around the level, which is just as important, sometimes even more important. And when prices become more unpredictable and you don't know what things are going to cost, either if you're a producer or a consumer, this just sort of, as said, poses a lot of costs to the economy. It puts a damper on investment. And I think we're going to see this a lot. I talk a lot about retirement, you know, because inflation hasn't been a big deal for so many decades. We saw a lot of retirement benefits stop doing inflation indexing. You know, it's an expensive thing to do. Uh, And when people weren't worried about inflation, they kind of let that go. And now that might actually become a bigger problem. Uh, I'm definitely sensitive to the idea of uncertainty in the marketplace. And there seems to be a lot of other sources beyond just inflation. Uh, Let's talk for a minute about the Biden tax plans. There's several different proposals out there. And um, in, in my in my life as a M&A attorney, uh, we have a lot of conversations about what what the different tax rates may mean. Can you talk a little bit about a few of the different proposals and what they may mean for people? And in particular, how much of an effect do you think would ha- we'd have if we raised the corporate tax rate back up to where it was before the before the TCJA? And and probably more importantly, what if we actually raise capital gains as, as dramatically as as Biden is suggesting? Well, I mean, again, it's going to be more subtle because allegedly this is only going to impact high earners, right? I mean, they're they're rather insistent that we can have all of this spending and only people who make more than $400,000 are going to pay the cost. I mean, that's not entirely true. Um, when we lowered the tax rate uh, in uh, 2017, I mean, I don't think most people directly saw a big impact. I mean, you said we did have a tighter labor market, the stock market did go up. I mean, there's a lot of other factors other than tax change that contributed to that. So, I mean, the reason why we did that was because uh, we had a much higher rate than the rest of the world. And unlike income, it's really easy to send taxes abroad. So that's one of the reasons they're pushing this global minimum tax. Because they're like, all right, well, we can't really increase it if everyone else has it much lower. So let's make everyone else increase it too. But I mean, in economics, in public finance economics, it's not just the rate you look at. You also want to look at the base. Because what you want to strive for when you have a tax policy is what we call efficiency, which is, you know, you, you take you, you have to raise revenue, but you want to cause as few distortions as possible. And generally, we think certain kinds of taxes cause more distortions than others. And you cause distortions, it's bad. It's inefficient. You don't have good information. Prices become less meaningful. And people do weird things that aren't in their best interest. And capital becomes a more murky concept that's harder to price. Risk becomes distorted. It's just messy. So even when we had the 32% tax increase tax rate, like there's a lot of ways around it. There's all these loopholes. There's, you know, ways to send your money abroad. So increasing the rate doesn't actually mean people are going to pay that. So we might not see sort of huge 
crashes in the stock market. We're not going to see like huge layoffs over it, but we are just going to get less efficiency, which just means the economy functions less well. Prices have less meaning. And that's why I think we should be wary of this global minimum tax. Sure. I mean, maybe we'll bully all these countries to go into it. But as I said, there's the base, like the money they actually pay tax on. And then there's the tax rate. So if we force a global minimum tax that's higher than what countries want to implement, then all they'll do then is have this incentive to erode the base, to like have all these giveaways and whatnot, to sort of make sure that people actually pay an effectively lower tax rate. So it's just less efficient. It's better to have a broader base to tax everything at a lower rate. You get actually more revenue that way than have these higher rates and then have all these ways of getting around it. Yeah, I've, I've been hearing about uh, the idea of a global minimum tax pretty much my entire career, and that's been 20 odd years. So uh, I've, I'm not... I'm not too fearful of it, particularly in, uh, and maybe I don't have the right sense of things, but particularly in an age where we have so much uh, nationalism and a lack of global harmony, uh, I'm not sure that a deal like that would really get done in this this climate. So one of the things you wrote about recently is the the rise of entrepreneurship in during the pandemic. And I, I guess I'll, I'll explain that a little bit, but also would you tie that into the this idea of the PRO Act? And do you think that something like the PRO Act that would make it much more difficult to treat someone as an, as a, uh, as an independent contractor versus an employee, would, would that have any bearing on the, the question of entrepreneurship and how easy it is to become an entrepreneur? I mean, obviously there's, types of entrepreneurship that is strictly sole proprietorship. But then I see a lot of entrepreneurship where, you know, someone creates a services business that is very much geared towards being a contractor doing services for a larger organization. How tired are those? Do you think that something like the PRO Act is actually going to impede further entrepreneurship? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, the current administration is really fetishizing, you know, I think how they thought work was in the 60s and probably wasn't even either, that everyone should be tied to this big employer, they should be part of a union, that they really want everyone protected in this way. But, you know, the we, we're not in that economy anymore. I think I've been convinced for a while that there's a lot of structural changes in the economy that make independent contract work a lot more appealing for a lot of people. I think we also saw this year how much people, a lot of people liked working from home. They like this sort of flexibility. And, uh, you know, I, I'm not completely convinced that employers are really excited to continue with this. We're already seeing them being like, eh, you know, you have to come back to the office and yeah, we could do hybrid, but you know, you can't really do hybrid because, you know, you don't want to be that one guy who's not in the office. So if people really want that flexibility, um, you know, contract work often makes a lot of sense. And even before the pandemic, we saw a lot of people who preferred it for those reasons. They really, I don't know if every time you get into an Uber and you talk to your Uber driver, they always tell you how much they love the flexibility. That works for a lot of people, especially for women with child uh, care needs. So um, the idea that we're going to force everyone to be an employee really goes against, I think, ways the economy is changing. In a lot of ways, there's never been better time to do contingent work just because of the technology that facilitates it. So um, I think it's not surprising that during the pandemic, we saw this huge growth in um, business applications, which is roughly people getting an employer ID number. So anytime you're going to have a bank account that's separate from your personal bank account for your business, you, you would count, uh, you would get an employer ID number. And so we see this huge gain in it and very little of it uh, was like someone actually forming a business to hire people. It was to be a sole proprietor. Uh, so I think is it, it's not surprising that in the environment, we saw a lot more of it to some extent because there was no other job options. 
Although I think it is uh, notable that people were getting paid so much in unemployment and in stimulus checks, but still chose to do this. So um, I think as I said, it's a, it's a fairly misguided policy that we want to sort of everyone working for an employer. When for a lot of people, it doesn't make sense. And in fact, I always find it sort of amusing that we're so fetishizing this idea that we're supposed to work for a big employer. When in the Industrial Revolution, when we moved to the factory model, people hated it. This whole idea that you had to be somewhere every day and someone's going to tell you what to do was like awful. Like it took a generation of people to agree to this. In fact, this is some of the origins of universal education is that these factory owners realized that we had to start conditioning young boys to sit still and be told what to do. And the only way we could get them to do it is if we started doing it when they were five. So the idea that we're now like, oh my God, it's going to be awful that people don't have this employer to protect them and look after them and tell them what to do all day is something we're desperately trying to hang on to is sort of weird. Yeah. And it seems to me that in a time when we have such high unemployment for all the reasons we've talked about of shutting down the economy, if we're trying to get people back to work, back to productivity, the last thing we should be doing is creating greater obstacles to working in, in like any form. Like let's get Let's reduce the barriers now. If if there's ever a time to do it, let's reduce the barriers and let the creativity take place now. But that doesn't seem to be the the administration's mindset at all. Yeah, this tends to be like post-recessions or post any big shock. You tend to be a very good time for entrepreneurship. And, you know, we spoke earlier about how I think the economy is going to boom this year. Longer to medium term, I'm, I'm not so optimistic just because... I mean, I think we will have growth. I tend to be optimistic in general when it comes to the economy. But big shocks like this tend to accelerate pre-existing changes, right? So we're just going to, whatever was happening that was displacing certain kind of workers, we're just going to see a lot more of. So when you allow sort of different untraditional forms of work, you make the labor market a lot more flexible for people. And so maybe if they are displaced as well, they can find this other way of working that keeps their skills fresh. Maybe they enjoy the flexibility. So, and as I said, with the technology, this is going to be easier than ever, especially as we adopt more of it. So it it is sort of, again, I think a lot of these policies really are going to be some of the big headwinds in the medium to long term, because it's really trying to slow down what a change that's largely inevitable anyway. I know you've written some recently about the ideas of breaking up big tech. And there's, I guess there's two sides of this. There's one that there's sort of, uh, and it's coming from both the right and the left of a pressure to rein in big tech threats to even, you know, uh, break up certain companies. And these are some of the most successful American companies. We're talking about the big tech companies. So on one hand, talk about what type of effect that might have in terms of slowing economic growth, but also I guess my question for you is, do you think those type of uh, political threats, if you will, against big companies, do you think that that puts a chill in the marketplace, even for, you know, sort of the middle market of companies that feel like, well, there's, you know, from both the right and the left, there's politicians out there with an axe to grind that are trying to impede commerce. Does it does it really play out that way at the sort of middle market, if you will, or is this really just something for the big tech companies that they're having to deal with? No, I don't think so, because it's not just the big companies. It's not like we're just against big. I mean, there's a, it's definitely a large contingent economics profession that's anti-big at the moment, um, but it's also big and visible, right? So because these tech companies are such a big part of our lives and they're big, I think they're on everyone's radar. But I don't think like other big companies necessarily, you know, like it's not like everyone's worried about Target. Um, 
but they are worried about Google because they see Google every day and they're worried about power. And there are legitimate concerns about big tech firms. Um, I think also because they're new and they're such a big part of our life and we don't quite know what to do with them. It's just breaking them up. I don't really see my issue with it is, I mean, I feel like going in and regulating a private sector company and actually deciding who can own what, that's a big deal. Sometimes I guess maybe you could justify it, but I don't see any reason to justify it other than the fact it's big. And that's not enough of a reason. We actually have to have like, proof that someone's being harmed by their size. And I don't think there's really a good case for that. In fact, it's very weird to me that we're now doing antitrust to make consumers pay more when traditionally it was always making consumers pay less. So I just don't, I think it's just like, we, there's not a good intellectual argument for breaking them up other than big is bad. Although I'm not terribly concerned that other big companies are going to fear it because, you know, they're not on the wrong political side of things. Uh, I think, you know, tech is sort of special that way. But that doesn't mean it's a good idea just because it won't uh, fear make other big companies fear breakups. It's just a bad idea, again, just on principle. So let me ask you about industrial policy. I believe you've written about that as well uh, recently. I believe it was either at uh, City Journal or in your new Substack that we'll talk about in a minute. Um, with, you know, there's this whole concept in the Biden administration about build back better uh, and, and and there seems to be a, a renewed interest in both the right and the left of industrial policy. With all these different headwinds, do and with the competition with China, with the disruption to the supply chain, do we need more industrial policy? Do we need more planning to work through this? Is this is this such an unusual circumstance with the recovery that we really need the government to lead the way, or is it just the opposite? Is it the government? meddling too much, trying to choose how we build back better that is creating additional uncertainty. Yeah, I don't know if you've looked at the Biden budget, but I think it's just an extraordinary document because it really is saying we're going to take as much money as possible from the private sector or anyone who's been successful in the private sector and give it to low income people and to industries we like. Like it's really like, let's revive low skill manufacturing. And uh, there's an absurd amount of money for electric cars. And it's just, you know, I you know, I think we all would like the idea of industrial policy. It, it effectively means we can grow without risk, right? And that, you know, because in innovation and investment, it's a, it's a risky thing to do. Uh, you don't know if an investment's going to pay off. And the idea is with industrial policies, the government's going to pick something. It's going to be great. There's some sort of flaw in the market as to why we're not picking the right things. And, oh, look at China. They've done such a great job with it. But the thing is, it just doesn't work that way. Risk is actually sort of how is a very good way to make investment decisions, right? You need to face downside risk to make good choices. You need to bear that risk. And also, it's really, un mostly it's unpredictable what's going to work out. I mean, you never know innovation is going to change the world. And the idea that government has people who, who know is absurd. And I think it's tempting to look at China and be like, well, and a lot of East Asian tigers a couple of decades ago and be like, oh, well, you know, industrial policy is this great thing. The government can pick what, what how investment dollars are directed. They'll make a better choice. No one has to face downside risk. We can even direct it to make sure that the people we like get paid more rather than these sort of unsympathetic entrepreneurs. But the thing is, when Asia did it, or even when China did it, they weren't really creating that many new products, right? They had existing technology that the market had already proven it liked and it already works. And we're just sort of building on that. But really, that sort of game changing technology, like something like an iPhone, 
like, you know, it's really hard to predict what's going to happen, what the market is going to like. And you need those people, I guess, being Hayekin about it, just sort of on the ground who have that little bit of information from that market they observe every day, need to be the ones directing capital to make that decision. So I think industrial policy, it's not the way we want to go. And given everything we know about China, I'm not quite sure what we're trying to emulate about them. I mean, I guess we all want 7% growth every year and we want that to be predictable. But you just can't get that if you're a mature economy because the only way to keep advancing if you're in a mature economy is to be on that frontier of innovation where you're taking risks and you're discovering new products that the world never even knew they wanted. Like one of my favorite statistics is that the steam engine, which you know pretty much ushered in the Industrial Revolution and pretty much everything that makes our life comfortable today, it took 100 years for that to show up in productivity estimates. Like People didn't even know what to do with it for, for 100, like 100 years, even still figuring it out, maybe even 200 years later. So the idea that the government is going to be like, ooh, there's this thing called a steam engine, let's develop it. Anyway, it might take 100 years for us to figure out what to do with it. I mean, that doesn't make any sense. It doesn't work that way. I, I, again, I know you've written, you've been writing a lot lately. <laughs> uh, I I know you've written a little bit about uh, stakeholder capitalism versus shareholder capitalism. And I kind of want to get your sense of this because in some sense, uh, I I, I probably should not make a comparison to critical race theory, but in some senses, there's a little bit of this. It it is whatever, you know, it's, it's, it's in the eye of the beholder to a certain degree. What just sort of describe what stakeholder capitalism is and, you know, our, Private sector companies, are they, uh, you know, are they sort of now falling prey to woke capitalism or are they simply putting new terminology on the fact that they've maybe not even new terminology, but they're sort of describing the fact that they're that they're interested in being a good steward of the economy, taking care of vendors and employees that they've always done. Um, And is some of this maybe just PR? So what's the is this all hype? Or is, you know, is the private sector seeing all the political headwinds from both the right and the left and they're suddenly wanting to just cave and become, I, I don't know, woke capitalist, semi, semi-socialist? What's really at stake and is it, is it all, is it, is it as meaningful as people are making it out to be? Well, I, 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 may, I might be optimistic and incredibly naive, but I like to think the critical race thing is going to flame out. I mean, no one likes it. It's a very small group of people who for a moment have outsized uh, cultural power who are pushing it. So I like to think it will flame out in a couple of years. I mean, that might be naive, but or maybe it's just my wishful thinking. But I think how it relates to uh, shareholder capitalism is important and even bigger than critical race theory. So there's shareholder capitalism, which was this ideal that uh, Milton Friedman very eloquently defended, which is that you know if you're a corporation, a public corporation, your goal should be maximizing value for shareholders. And that is profits, right? Because if you're a shareholder, you care about profits because you like care about dividends and you care about stock prices, which are both very tightly t- tied to profits. And he argued this wasn't only good for their pockets, it was good for society because you just don't want, um, uh, you know, the sort of corporate boards making this sort of other decisions that, to be honest, they're not qualified or really should be empowered to make. This is someone else's money. And I think now that we've had more years and we're in this sort of very interesting political moment, I think that argument becomes even more important and uh, takes on even new resonance. Because so stakeholder capitalism would be the alternative to shareholder, which is there's more stakeholders who benefit from corporation than the shareholders. They're their workers. They're the people who live in the community. There's all these other people. 
And so the idea is we have to think about these other stakeholders. But the question is, who? Who gets what weight and how and why? I mean, it's sort of like, do you care about the you know factory workers in one state versus the other if you want to move your factory? I mean, it... Or, you know, if you're a steel company, are you not going to sell money to a gun manufacturer? Like, there's all these questions. And these questions, for me, always become a question of values. Because, you know, the good thing about shareholder capitalism is, or shareholder primacy is it's objective. It's like profits as opposed to, well, we care about people in Minnesota more than we care about people in Georgia. It, you know, you don't have to have these sort of personal values. And everyone has their own personal values. And I... It's unpopular to say, but I think everyone's personal values are valid. And, you know, you don't, workplace should be a place where you can just put those aside and all come together and cooperate. So you can see is once you get into this stakeholder model, you become, it becomes like your role in the community and your values, the values that you project as a company become so important. So you're more privy to capture of things like critical race theory, whether or not that flames out or not, you're always going to be more sensitive to these sorts of like destructive trends, which is why the shareholder primacy model is so much better because it keeps things objective and clean. And ultimately that's better for society. And I think even bigger than critical race theory, something we're seeing is now when companies feel like they're supposed to take these moral stands, they also only will then attract certain kinds of employees or other kinds of employees feel pressured to leave. And I think that's ultimately even worse for society because, you know, there was a time where we all came together and you met people who had different values, but you still respected and you had to work with them. You had to have this common goal of increasing profits or being a successful company. And the working together in that cooperation is what kind of bound people together. And they'd be like, all right, my coworker has guns and likes guns. I don't like guns, but you know, I know he's a good guy. So I don't, every time I hear that someone has a gun, I don't freak out. So um, as I said, once companies become more political, which the stakeholder model, I feel like inevitably does, you really erode a lot of these sort of binding factors of society. Yeah. From my own perspective, I, I definitely see the risk, uh, it's a significant risk of over-politicizing business decisions and so forth. But I also, uh, I, I see some people react uh, very, uh, sort of overreact to um, the ideas of some of the concept of stakeholder capitalism in the sense of companies have always um, tried to um, position themselves for PR purposes of being a good citizen, of uh, putting, you know, uh, you know, you have like large or you know, large corporations that are putting sponsorship dollars in little leagues that from a pure, you know, they're, they're not going to actually get as many you know, new sales from their product uh, based on that particular advertisement in, you know, in that little league team. But it's just a way to show that they are part of the community and so forth, which I think is a good thing. And, and to a certain degree, there's a soft side of what, what I loosely would call stakeholder capitalism that I think is that I think it's the over politicization risk that I have real concerns with because I ultimately I. I, I do believe in you know the shareholder primacy, but I do think that this is a it's an interesting thing to watch because I think that there's a it, it is sort of a uh, it's a matter of how one views this and whether this is just a uh, a soft tip of the hat to other concerns versus uh, you know actually providing some type of additional rights to employees, which can be problematic. Um, yeah, well, let me ask it becomes more explicit, right? I mean, at least shareholder right. primacy. I mean, people always did other things. And in fact, shareholder primacy has never been 
in any like corporate governance. You know, most companies actually is like, we care about everyone because who's going to say we just care about profits? Anyway, they do. But at least when we say shareholder primacy is roughly the objective, at least they can say, well, we had to make this choice. If we had to choose between having a factory in Michigan versus Alabama, we chose Alabama because of lower labor costs. And you at least have that fig leaf. So we've talked about um, all these different issues we got to contend with in the recovery. Um, and I, I think the initial comments were very optimistic. But what are what are some of the signs other than just sort of pent up demand? What are what are the signs that, you know, are, if there's a takeaway that this we should be looking forward to uh, economic growth? What are some other signs of optimism? Um, well, as I said, we see people traveling. We see people going to restaurants. Um, I think. People, uh, I said, I, I take this sort of uptick in um, uh, entrepreneurship as a very good sign. I hope uh, we don't do everything we can to destroy it. Um, I, I definitely get the sense that people are, are sort of coming back to life. I'm in New York and people less so here because um, I think people are still still very super nervous about the virus. But um, I definitely feels like we're an economy that's coming back to life, which is something I've never seen before because I've never seen an economy shut down before. So I think, as again, I, I worry actually that, as I said, we are laying the foundations of some bad headwinds ahead through policy or, as I said, just sort of, um, uh, you know, big shocks, accelerate change, ch- change. I like change, but change can also be a little messy. So I, I'm worried about that. But I feel like the growth we're going to have for the next several months will paper over a lot of those sins for good or for bad. Um, so, I mean, that's why I'm feeling about it right now. So I, I usually like to, uh, jump on any opportunity for a good segue. And I, I didn't this time, even though you use the word fetishizing several times, but I think probably now we should talk about your book, your <laughs> book, <laughs> your book is an economist walks into a brothel. Mm-hmm. Tell us about your book. Um, so the, so I said, my background is as a financial economist. Well, initially it was retirement, but then I switched to hardcore finance. And so I was talking about earlier about um, corporate tax rates, about the role of risk pricing and how value, we always think of value being driven by scarcity, but really value is driven by risk. So what I did is I traveled the country and met people in various exotic industries, I guess, um, and figure out how risk is priced and how they put a price on risk. Because, I mean, we think of risk as how things are priced in financial markets, but really they price everything. So even sex work, you know, a risky sex transaction tends to be cheaper than um, a more safe transaction, which is just like you see in financial markets. How So the paparazzi are paid is also, there's a risk story there. So just sort of explored different industries and saw how risk is priced, how risk is managed, and how it really did align with the risk science we know from financial markets. All right. And tell us uh, a little bit about your new Substack. In addition to all of this, in addition to writing a book, being a senior fellow at Manhattan Institute, and now writing for Bloomberg, you also have a Substack. Tell us what your plans are for your for your newsletter. Um, well, I've actually had it for a long time. It was on Tiny Letter Forever, um, and it was just um, initially I started it just because I wanted. I was writing for Quartz at the time, you know, where you're writing for a broad audience, so you have to be super accessible and explain everything. And I really just wanted a place where I could just talk about pension discount rates and not explain what one was and just be like nerdy about uh, let my sort of financial economist who hates actuaries freak flag fly and like appeal to that community. Um, 
of course, like I'm not doing pension retirement stuff as much as I used to. So now I just use it to talk about other things. I recently moved it to Substack just because, you know, it's better visibility. I like I like the, the format better. Um, and so now also that means more people read it. And I probably am also writing, as, you, as we discussed, a much broader uh, number of things rather than retirement economics. So I'm talking more about that because it's just more on my mind. So I guess it's gotten more accessible. But I, I don't actually have a great strategy with it. As I said, I started it just because I want I wanted to rail about pension discount rates and stuff like that to a community of people who are as angry as I was about uh, pension accounting. <laughs> uh, I, 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 I we actually just uh, we just had a conversation with Adam Gurry, who also has a, a new Substack, and it was something kind of similar in the sense of he just wanted a place where he could go write and write what was on his mind and not be so concerned about the number of readers and so forth. And I think there's something liberating about that, that if, we, if we're trying to write and we have a particular audience in mind, that sometimes that defines what we're trying to do. So I really like the idea of, uh, that you just described there of sort of having a little bit more more freedom, and as, you know, particularly in the prior version of this, we're talking about nerding out. I think that's uh, I think that's wonderful. Uh, so uh, thank you for uh, being with us today, and it was a, it was quite a pleasure. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It was great.